My name's Ryan. I'm one of the apprentices here at Uni Church. Uh, it's such a privilege to get to come together and open God's Word together, yeah? So let's pray as we start up and ask that God would help us to understand His Word well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us together tonight as your church here on campus. And we thank you for your Word. Thank you for this series in Revelation that we've been able to work through and see what it looks like to live as your people in this time between the cross and the throne. And so tonight, as we come to Revelation again, would you give us clarity in how we understand it, and would you help us to see what it means to live this out in our lives, even this week? I pray for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but humans are a pretty talented bunch, Uh, but I think one of the things that we're routinely bad at is being able to predict the future. Uh, One of my favorite examples of this is a record label called Decca Records. In 1962, they auditioned a band from Liverpool. Uh, But Decca Records decided that, unfortunately, this band used too many guitars, uh, and guitars were on the way out. And the record executive actually summarized the audition this way. He said, the Beatles have no future in show business. (laughs) Uh, They work better at morning church, where people have heard of the Beatles. Uh, (laughs) But see, the Beatles would sign with a different label and go on to sell over 600 million albums. That record executive, he got the future pretty wrong. (laughs) He didn't really know what was coming. But that got me thinking, uh, if you could know the future, and like not just guess or kind of have a best idea of what might happen, but actually know with certainty the future, what would you have done differently in your life so far? My mind with this went straight to Bitcoin. Uh, I don't know who else went with me on that. Uh, Do you know if you invested $1,000 in Bitcoin in 2010, you could have cashed out last year for $997 million. Think of the church buildings we could buy if we'd all just done that. Uh, See, all around us, uh, there's people trying to predict the future. We look at, uh, maybe it's stock market algorithms, maybe it's all the public health experts we've been hearing on the news. Uh, We see economists, we see weather forecasts, everyone is trying to tell us what's going to happen in the future, but the problem is that all of them are guessing might be varying levels of educated guess, but ultimately they're all guessing. No one actually knows what's coming up in the future. I think we'd all agree, though, if we could know the future, uh, you'd be pretty crazy to ignore that. Yeah, we'd probably want to change what we're doing. And so as we come to Revelation tonight, it's going to actually claim to know the future. And so if it's true, it's probably a good idea to listen up to what Revelation says to us tonight. And to put the message really simply, Revelation is telling us tonight that judgment is coming. We just heard it read, but let's pick it up again, starting in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce the inhabitants of the earth. To every nation, tribe, language, and people, he spoke with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Now, I'll be honest with you all tonight. Uh, Preaching is pretty cool, uh, but I would not have chosen a passage about judgment uh, if it was up to me. Uh, I remember back when I was living in the Hawke's Bay, uh, there was this guy who would walk up and down the main street with a sandwich board. You know those boards with like a message on the front and back? And it said something like, uh, Jesus is coming, repent or burn in hell. And we see that and we're kind of like, ah, it's just a bit gross. Uh, Maybe he's a nice guy, but we all just kind of think he's a bit of a kook. Uh, And so as I stand up here tonight, I kind of feel like that guy. Uh, I get to stand up here for a while and tell you all about judgment. Uh, It's just not really a topic you're meant to bring up in polite conversation. But it's part of God's word, and so it's worth us looking into. 
Because rejecting something just because we don't like it, that's kind of like going to a doctor, right? And he gives you a diagnosis of cancer. And you go, man, that is such depressing news. I can't believe you would be so rude to tell me such bad news. And then you just turn around and leave and do nothing about it. We all get that that would be a kind of crazy thing to do. And when Revelation talks about judgment, it's giving us God's diagnosis on the world. So let's not be people who get offended and turn away and just walk off, but let's actually see what God's word says about judgment as we dive in. In those couple of verses I just read, we saw that John, he describes this angel coming, and it just means a messenger from God, and he delivers the gospel, the good news. But notice the content of that gospel that he delivers. Because I think when we think about gospel, uh, we tend to think of God loves us, uh, God sent a son for us, God offers forgiveness, and those things are absolutely true. But it's not the focus that this angel comes along with. The focus for this angel is that judgment is imminent. You catch that as we're going through. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Naturally, I think that should probably raise the question for us, how is that good news? It doesn't sound that great. And the answer to that really it depends on who you are. Right? If you're someone who's trusting in Jesus, we've been seeing a picture that kind of runs through Revelation that's been that there'll be suffering in this world. We're going to deal with the consequences of evil, evil from other people, but also our own evil. We're going to face people who hate us for our Christian faith, and there's going to be persecution that comes from that. So the picture of life here is that it's not easy. But the day that Jesus comes back is the day when all of that's put right. Judgment day is a day when all of that suffering is dealt with, all the ways people have been mistreated is put right. And so if, if people are trusting in Jesus, it's a great day to look forward to. But the kind of flip side of that is for people who aren't trusting in Jesus, this is awful news. Right? The angel is coming along and he's sounding the alarm. So as we hear that alarm, I think we all want to know the answer to when. When is this actually going to happen? How long do we have to work this all out before Jesus comes back? And if Revelation wanted to give us the exact date, this would be the perfect place to do it. Um, but I don't know if you heard, as we're reading through, there's no date given. Uh, and that's intentional on Revelation's part. Because this book is not designed to be a calendar that just lays out all the key dates for us to look forward to. But it's giving us a picture of what's happening. And the picture it's showing us today is that judgment is coming. Judgment is imminent. <clears throat> Jesus' return is the next thing around the corner. And so the angel comes along and he says, turn to God now. Turn to God before it's too late. But this just keeps raising more questions. Why? Why is Jesus coming back? Why does the world get such a bad diagnosis from God? And that's where the second angel turns up. And he keeps unpacking this by introducing us to the character of Babylon. So let's read on verse 8. And another, a second angel followed saying, it has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. Now, Babylon's a new character in Revelation. We haven't come across that yet. And it's actually a bit of a strange one to bring up as well. Because Babylon is not some great superpower. That would be Rome if you wanted to talk about that. And Babylon has actually been kind of irrelevant for hundreds of years. So why would John bring them up here? He can't be talking about the literal city. That wouldn't make any sense. And so the clue is going to be, how is Babylon shown to us in the Old Testament? I hope if you've been following along through the series, you've seen that uh, the Old Testament really is the key to unlocking Revelation and understanding what's going on. 
So let's, let's head back and let's have a look at how uh, Babylon come to us in the Old Testament. We're going to head right back to Genesis 11, the first time that they come up. And so in Genesis 11, these people, they've gathered together and they've come up with a plan. Let's read it in chapter 11, verse 4. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered throughout the earth. Now, by this point in, uh, in Genesis, uh, we've seen plenty of sin already. But this is really one of the key pictures where we see humans trying to glorify themselves. They're trying to dethrone God. If you notice, they want their tower to reach to the sky, reach to the heavens. Right, what's going on there is the, the heavens is where God dwells. This is people trying to get up there and take God's place. And then God comes. He calls them Babylon. You can see that in verse 9 as he comes and scatters them. And so as we see Babylon, we're seeing people refusing to submit to God and try and take that position for themselves. But they keep coming up again in the Old Testament. We see them as well. Babylon are one of the nations that uh, attack God's people, Israel. They conquer them. They send them out into exile. And King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he kind of praises himself for this. And Daniel 4, verse 30, it's to be on the screen, says, Is this not Babylon the great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? See, Babylon are not only the enemy of God's people, but they're proud of that. And so when we come to Babylon uh, in Revelation, we aren't looking at a literal city, that city's already been and gone. What we're seeing is people who refuse to submit to God. You can see Babylon as the city against God. That'll help you kind of keep that phrase in your head and you'll understand what's going on a bit more. But really, all of us should see ourselves in that city against God, right? Is there anyone here who can uh, claim to have always submitted perfectly to God in their actions and in their words and in their thoughts? to never have sought their own or wanted to glorify themselves or wanted to be seen as more, always sought God first. Uh, I don't think any of us would want to put ourselves up on a pedestal and say that. And so as we see who Babylon is and see that they deserve judgment, we should resonate with that. See that each one of us deserve that same judgment ourselves. But the people John was writing to, right, they had a better future. And we want to get this right. It's not because they somehow didn't deserve judgment. It's because they trusted in the lamb who was slain. We've been seeing that come up throughout Revelation, the lamb who was slain. Uh, right? Maybe you kind of wonder, why did he have to be slain? Why not just be a lamb? Uh, and the reason is because this judgment that we're unpacking in Revelation, the lamb, Jesus, took that on behalf of everyone who trusts in him. So it's not that these people didn't deserve judgment. It's that they knew the judgment had already been taken. That's a huge encouragement to them. But there's actually something even, uh, even more than that as well that should be taken as an encouragement. Because as the church received this letter, uh, they would have heard about Babylon, and they would have looked at Rome, and they would have seen a pretty clear connection. Right? Rome, they set themselves up as, very clearly as God's enemies. They were brutal and violent in attacking the church. The Roman emperors even set themselves up as God, and they tried to force people in their kingdoms to worship them as gods. So if you want to look for a picture of the evil city against God and against his people, Rome was a pretty great picture, and they were powerful. So as the church looked up at it, they would have felt weak and insignificant. Now, how are we going to stand up with such a great power against us? So this prophecy in Revelation comes along to encourage them. It says it's already over. 
Did you catch that as we were going through? It doesn't say that Babylon will fall. It says Babylon has fallen. Now, this is something that the Bible does sometimes. It talks about an event that's in the future, but it talks about it like it's in the past. And it does that to show us how certain it is. So it's saying judgment is certain. And that means for the church, victory is certain. Obviously, we can look back in history and we can see that this came true with Rome. They're gone. <laughs> and yet God has continued to work in building his church. Right? Rome was the seemingly all-powerful nation. You would have thought there's no way this can possibly uh, be defeated. There's no way Christians can stand up amidst this. And yet now we look back and they're just an interesting chapter in history books. Whereas the church, which was this small group of people who were persecuted, they seem pretty weak, they seem pretty insignificant. Since then, hundreds of millions of people have confessed Jesus as Lord. I want an incredible picture that victory has already been won, that these superpowers that set themselves up are not going to have the ultimate victory. But it's bigger than just Rome, right? Rome is a good example, but it's not the full picture that's going on here. Uh, because they're not unique uh, in being people who stand up against God. Uh, we can look at any point in history, we can kind of pick any time, and we'll find political powers, we'll find economic powers, we'll find philosophies, we'll even find religions that set themselves up in opposition to God and in opposition to his people. All of these things are forms of the city against God. And so the angelic announcement comes, they won't win. Right? It's saying, Jesus wins, Babylon loses. So Babylon has fallen. That message comes to us just as clearly today as it did back then. To give you a few examples of where we can see this, uh, in 1882, the philosopher Nietzsche said, God is dead. God remains dead and we have killed him. Now this is an idea that came out from the Enlightenment, which was basically that through human um, intelligence and wisdom and just kind of working things out with our own intelligence, we didn't need God anymore. We'd answered all the questions we thought we needed God for, uh, and we could do it ourselves. But now, again, we look back at the Age of Enlightenment as an era in the history books, and we can look back and see the flaws in their thinking, and yet God hasn't been dead. The Age of Enlightenment has passed us by, and yet God has still been at work in all this time in building his church. Just a few weeks back, we heard a story from Afghanistan, right, where the, the church there is being horrifically persecuted by the Taliban. The Taliban there are trying to extinguish any flame that might remain of Christianity. So the Babylon has fallen, comes, and it says, they can try as hard as they want, they will not get victory over the church. Even our own government here have passed laws trying to, you know, stop the church from proclaiming Jesus as king over our identity and over our sexuality. We don't know how bad persecution might get with all of that, but what we do know is that they won't get victory over the church. The Revelation is saying, it doesn't matter how weak or insignificant you might feel, God is using his church to build the greatest kingdom that the world has ever seen. And you and I are part of that if we're trusting in Jesus. Any opposition we might feel or any opposition that might come up in the future has already been defeated. Babylon has fallen. What a huge encouragement to come to. But the story keeps unfolding as we get the third uh, angel coming along. So let's keep reading Genesis, uh, Revelation 14, bring it back up in verse 9. The third angel comes along and he says, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. 
He'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and the sight of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. We start to kind of see a bit of the horror and the terror of God's judgment here. Now, we kind of spent a bit of time on the beast last week, so we won't spend heaps of time here. You can check the sermon from last week if you want more detail. But we see that those who follow the beast are any people who aren't trusting in Jesus. In Revelation, we get these two groups. We get the one group who are trusting in Jesus, and they're marked as God's people. And we get the other group who are not trusting in Jesus, and they're marked as the beast's people. And for anyone following the beast, the picture in here is awful. It's a picture of receiving wrath, fire, sulfur. It says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. It's this endless suffering. There's no rest. There's no let up. And then it gets worse. (laughs) Because John describes the harvest of the earth. We had heard that when Michael read it out before. But Jesus and then one of the angels swing their sickles. They harvest up the people of the earth like grapes. And they throw them into a wine press. It was the last verse that Michael read out for us, and so it might have passed you by a bit, but let's read it again. Verse 20. Then the press was trampled outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press up to the horse's bridle for about 180 miles. I don't know what you're like with your miles to kilometers conversions, uh, but that's coming up about 300 kilometers. You can picture from where we're standing here in Auckland past Topor. Pictures of a sea of blood running about this deep, from here past Topo. It's haunting. The scale of God's judgment is just immense. And it kind of sounds brutal, right? I think there's a part of us that goes, is God over the top in his response? Our guts tell us that judgment like this can't be loving. But think for a moment about the evil that's gone on throughout history. Maybe you think of the various slave trades, uh, maybe the false preachers who've manipulated the poor to take their money. Maybe you think of people like Hitler and Stalin who've killed millions and millions of people. What kind of God could just shrug his shoulders and say, welcome to heaven? As we see these horrific things in history, something in us cries out for justice. We get that justice is a good thing. Even here in New Zealand, I don't know who's followed the story of Jaden Mayer over the last few months. Uh, It's an awful story. This guy raped four teenage girls. He was found guilty of it, and the judge gave him nine months of home detention. And in response to that, there's been outrage. There's been people who've been protesting up and down the country, because as we see that, we get that letting people off with evil is not good. A judge who lets people get away unpunished is not a good judge. And so as we look at God, we don't want a God who's apathetic, a God who's indifferent toward our sin. And the passage actually goes out of its way as well to show us that the punishment is fitting. It's not, we can think this maybe is some kind of random outburst of anger where God just lost his temper one day. That's not what's going on here. We look back at verse 8 where it's talking about Babylon and it says, she made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. It says it plainly. Uh, the rebellious living we talked about, it brings wrath. Uh, but more than that, Notice that it's pictured as drinking the wine of sexual immorality. And then we hear God's wrath described as wine being poured out full strength. There's an intentional parallel going on here that's showing us the connection. It's showing us that the punishment fits the crime. The people who choose to drink the wine of immorality 
receive the wine of God's wrath poured out. It's not unrelated, it's exactly what people deserve. This awful picture we see is not random, it's just and it's fitting. What an incredible thought to see that Jesus bore that punishment for us if we trust in him. This horrific image that Jesus would love us enough to take that in our place. But even so, it should be sobering to us. We should see this passage as a wake-up call. I want to ask you today, does this image of terrifying judgment that's coming motivate you and how you're sharing the gospel with those around you? Every day we're interacting with people. Maybe it's coworkers or students here on campus. Maybe it's friends and family, just random people on the street. Whoever it is, there are over one and a half million people here in Auckland. And the vast majority of them do not know Jesus. And so if we believe that judgment is imminent, Jesus could come back tomorrow. The vast majority of these people are going headfirst into this judgment that we're seeing described. And we as Christians have the message that can change that. Right? The message that can share hope that can spare people from judgment, that can show God's mercy. And so what are we doing with that? I've been convicted as I look at my own life of the excuses I make. You know, it just didn't feel like the right conversation to bring it up, maybe next time. Or I'm waiting for my friends to ask questions because if I bring it up, it feels really pushy. Maybe it's just I've got a lot of responsibilities, a lot of things on, I just haven't thought about it. I don't know if you see yourself in that, but where's the urgency? Right, we're not living like we actually believe that this judgment is awful and could come at any minute. So I want to challenge you, and I'm challenging myself as I say it. What can we do this week to share the gospel with those around us? And I really mean this week. I don't mean six months from now. But what can you do this week? Whether that's committing to praying for a friend. Maybe that's inviting a neighbor around for a meal so you can invest in that relationship. Maybe that's inviting someone to explain in Christianity that Andrew was talking about earlier. What an awesome opportunity we have as explaining Christianity, a great time we can come together and explore what Christianity says. Let's make, the, make use of that, invite people along to hear the message that can spare them from this judgment. Because we know there's a better option for people. There's a better option than this judgment. The passage talks about it. Uh, we see the saints everywhere through it, the saints who endure, the saints gathered around the throne. In this passage, they kind of function like bookends. It starts and ends with them. The people gathered around praising God. Let's go back to the top of the passage. We'll pick it up in verse 3, where we've seen these people gathered at Mount Zion with Jesus, and it says, they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. But no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they remained virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were redeemed from humanity as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. So again, we see the 144,000 who we've seen through Revelation. Uh, they're representing the fullness of God's people. Right? Verse 3 described them as those who've been redeemed from the earth. But unexpectedly as well, it describes them as virgins. Right? That's a, a pretty weird way to describe God's people. Uh, maybe it makes us ask, are only virgins saved somehow? Wouldn't that be a plot twist, like right at the end of the Bible? You just get like 10 chapters from the end, and it goes, by the way, only male virgins get to heaven. Uh, that would be pretty awful, don't worry, that's not what's going on here. See, all through the Bible, it's clear that God offers forgiveness. Sex is not some kind of ultra-evil category of sin that God doesn't forgive. Uh, that, that is nowhere to be found within Christianity. 
And in fact, the Bible says that sex within marriage is a good thing. So the Bible's not anti-sex in any way. So what Revelation is actually doing for us is it's drawing a contrast. Right? We saw that Babylon and those with them are joining in their sexual immorality. Whereas those who are with Jesus are those who haven't defiled themselves, is what the passage says. They've remained virgins. So it's not ultimately actually about sex. It's a picture of either people who have joined with Babylon or those who have remained faithful to Christ. And that gives us a pretty clear line in the sand. Right? On one side, we have those who are enduring in faith, having faith in Jesus. And on the other side, we have everyone else, those who've sided with Babylon. We've already seen what waits for those with Babylon, that awful picture of judgment. But for those who have faith in Jesus, it's an awesome picture of victory, of spending eternity doing exactly what we were made to do. You may have noticed if you've been coming with, through Revelation with us, just how often singing keeps coming up. Because that's what God made us to do, to be people who praise him for eternity. And so those who trust in Jesus, that's their future, living how we were made to live. It's a picture of peace, of rest from all the struggles we have in this life. That's the incredible hope we have as Christians. But I want to make it really clear on this. There's no third group in this passage. Right? There's, no, there's no one sitting on the fence. There's no middle ground. We don't see anything between God's people and God's enemies. Right? It's kind of like uh, marriage. You get on your wedding day, you end up at the altar, and you're asked, do you take uh, this person to be your husband or wife? Uh, and this is a tip for John. Uh, don't say maybe. <laughs> maybe is not a good answer. If you try and give a halfway answer to that question, you'll very quickly find out you're not married. Right? There's no halfway married option. And it's like that as we come to Jesus. The picture is that at Jesus' return, there are two lines. One of those lines is going to eternal life. One of those lines is going to eternal judgment. And the only difference between those two groups is that one has trusted in Jesus' death in their place. Right? It's not the, the kind of best people who gave the most money to charity. It's not the people who did the most nice things for everyone else. It's the people who have trusted in Jesus' death in their place. So if you're here today thinking that you're neutral, you're not for God, you're not against God, the Bible doesn't leave any room for that. If you're thinking you can have one foot in each camp, the Bible says that's siding with Babylon because you're still calling the shots. You're not submitting to how God says to respond to him. So please don't leave here thinking that you're watching on from the sidelines, you're just a spectator to all of this. Ask yourself honestly which of these two groups you're in. But if you are trusting in Jesus, there's an important note for you in verse 12. After describing the judgment that's coming, it says, this calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. That's pretty clear on the surface, right? Judgment is coming. It's going to be really bad. So remain faithful and you won't suffer. Uh, that's a pretty clear picture. Uh, that's true, but there's more going on than just that. See, why does John have to say this? He recognizes that it's going to be tempting not to endure. As we look around us as Christians, we're going to see people who are living with no regard for God, and we're going to think, that looks better than my life. Babylon is going to have some appeal. I think this, this kind of showed itself for me as we were thinking through uh, giving to the building campaign here at EV. Uh, I'm a third-year apprentice, as you heard earlier, uh, and the apprenticeship, you're not broke, but it's, you know, financially, it's not the most comfortable time. 
And so there was every temptation for me to fall back into being greedy, to put myself first, to put my own comforts ahead of the kingdom, to say to the person who sacrificed his life for me, there's no way I'm making that sacrifice for you. I want to make it very clear. Um, the point here is not about a building and whether you're in a position to give or not. That's not the point. The point is how my desires constantly want to pull me away from God. See, living in this world as God's people, there's going to be opportunities everywhere to take steps away from God, take steps toward Babylon. Opportunities to follow the world's example rather than obey God's word. Maybe you're feeling that as you're tempted to prioritize your uni grades like everyone around you, rather than to prioritize your walk with God. Maybe it's you're feeling that desire to pull back from church because of that person who hurt you by what they said, rather than to actually put in the work to fix the relationship. Maybe you're feeling the temptation toward sexual sin, whether it's with a boyfriend or girlfriend or just someone you work with. Babylon's sin is corrosive. It's wearing away at us all the time. So where is that for you? Where is there an opening for Satan to get a hold and drag you down? Because this tells us clearly that others' lives are going to look attractive. We're going to see people who look like they're happy and they're fulfilled and they have no consequences for, why for the way they're living. And at some point, we're going to think, why not just throw in the towel on this whole Christianity thing? But Revelation says that's a path that leads to destruction. Don't give in. Endure. Because those who endure will receive eternal life. It's an encouragement to persevere and carry on. That's actually another thing that's highlighted about those who endure. Because at the start and end, they're gathered together. We've already seen that. They're singing. But let's close in on the start of chapter 15, where they're gathered together singing again. It says they're standing on the sea of glass with harps from God. Then it says they sang the song of God's servant Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now, the song that's then included is not a direct quote from anywhere in the Old Testament, and we shouldn't really expect it to be, right? This is some kind of combination of uh, the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb, so it's kind of bringing different ideas together through the Bible. But as we see God's people gathered on the sea, and they're singing the Song of Moses, our minds should be going back to Exodus, right? This is the time when uh, God has just brought his people out of slavery. He's freed them. He's brought them out of Egypt, miraculously parted the Red Sea, so that they can walk through safely. And in Exodus 15, they're gathered and they sing to God there on the edge of the sea. But if we look a bit more closely, they're not just praising God for saving them. They're actually praising God for judging the Egyptians. You can have a look at the story. We're just going to have a look at some of what they sing. Exodus chapter 15 from verse 4. He threw Pharaoh's chariots and his army into the sea. The elite of his officers were drowned in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Lord, your right hand is glorious in power. Lord, your right hand shattered the enemy. You overthrew your adversaries by your great majesty. You unleashed your burning wrath. It consumed them like stubble. Doesn't that kind of feel wrong to sing? <laughs> you know, praise God for destroying people? But see, Egypt, they've enslaved God's people. They've been brutal slave masters in that. They've been given opportunity after opportunity to obey God, and yet they've kept refusing. Even as God's people are finally free, the Egyptians change their minds and send the whole army to pursue them, chase them down. 
Again and again, they've set themselves against God and his people. They're insisting on their rebellion. And there comes a point where God just says, enough. He brings decisive judgment. And his people praise him because that's a good thing. As Revelation brings together these ideas, or we're seeing this Moses and the Lamb together, it's showing us that Jesus has done the same thing. Jesus brings this incredible, incredible salvation. It's, it's even greater than what the Israelites were saved from. But he also brings a terrifying judgment. It's far more severe than what happened to the Egyptians. Salvation and judgment throughout the Bible come hand in hand. If there's no judgment, what are we saved from? If there's no judgment, how is God a just and good God who's worthy of being worshipped? We see absolutely that God is glorified by saving people, but he's also glorified by judging evil. I want to be very clear on this. This doesn't mean we can just become calloused and kind of indifferent, going, well, if God's going to be glorified either way, who cares whether people are saved or not? The church has given such a clear mission to preach the gospel and see people come to see this incredible hope that we have. So that can't be what it means. But it does mean that we can't just chop off the parts of God we don't like. We don't get to say, I don't really like to think of God as a judge. I prefer to think of him as fill in the blank. We don't get to say, I think God is loving, so I don't believe he judges anyone. I think he just saves everyone. It might be uncomfortable for us, but we have to let God's word tell us who he is. If we just cut off the parts of God we don't like, we're just making a God in our own image. We're making an idol. It's just a God from our imaginations. God should be praised and worshipped for who he is and what he's doing. And that includes both his mercy and his judgment. And so today as we've seen this judgment that's terrifying, but that's certain and it's imminent, how is that going to be reflected in your life? Because missing this is bigger than not signing the Beatles. Uh, it's worse than selling Bitcoin at the wrong time. This affects our eternity. John says this calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. So let's make that our story. Right? Let's be people who endure. Let's not let Babylon corrode our faith in Jesus. Let's submit to Jesus as he's revealed to us in his word and proclaim his goodness and his mercy with every day that he gives us. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word tonight, we've seen something that's confronting. We've seen our own sin and how much we deserve your judgment. It's uncomfortable to see, and yet at the same time, we see your incredible mercy. That on the cross, Jesus would take that judgment that we deserve. And so, Lord, would you help us to see the goodness of that? And would you give us the boldness to share that with people around us, knowing that this is the message that can change people's eternal destiny and save them from judgment and see them living for eternity with you the way we were designed to live? Lord, would you help us to keep seeing your goodness, even as we struggle through your word, looking forward to the day when Jesus returns and we will be gathered before you forever. I pray for this in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. 
So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.